I'm curious what you would say to the question, and this is okay to have a little bit of a dialogue. Uh, um, I'm curious what you would say about what motivates a person to act generously? Anyone? 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 Yeah. Go for it, Anthony. Yeah. So there's a level of gratitude, maybe an indebtedness. Yeah. What else? Seeing the need. Absolutely. Believing in the cause. Yeah. I'll, I'll sacrifice. I'll help. I'll whatever if I believe in the cause. Let me ask you this, though. Um, do you feel like uh, are people naturally generous or is generosity learned? It's an either or question. Don't do a both and with me. Follow the rules. No. Mm. So seeing some kind of less fortunate condition, there's a natural empathy. So the case to be made for inherent I or innate. Anyone else want to take a run at that? Are people naturally generous or is this something learned? Absolutely, and, and it doesn't even have to be an only child. It could be a really affluent family, and everyone had their own, and so no one had to share. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, if we're never taught the socialization of sharing, we don't necessarily think, or it's not enculturated. Yeah, was there a hand up here? Yes, Alfred. Real loud. I agree. So I'm, I'm asking a question that, and, and Alfred already broke the rules by saying it's both, uh, but I'm asking a question that is both, but we typically think of it like, oh, we find someone who's generous, or we find someone, or maybe we think about how we've had to grow in this area. But I think it is both. Maybe we could say it like this. Maybe it's a muscle that just needs to get exercised. But there is this inherent conscience 
in us that can be moved depending on what the circumstance is. Now, I read uh, an article a little while back, and I just kind of held on to it because it, it struck me. And it was sort of a no-duh article, but uh, it was 10 simple habits that make people happier. And it was 10 things of sort of predictable, common sense things. But the thing that caught my eye was it, it, was, um, it was proven by science. So they wanted to kind of equate your feelings of happiness scientifically. And so I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And it was your natural kind of normal things going through this. Well, it was, <coughs> you, know, uh, you know, get more rest so you don't have such a, a negative reaction to negative emotions. And it was live closer to work, uh, presumably because commute creates a worse version of you. Uh, it, it was, you know, time with family and friends, identifying your hobbies. But the one that struck me the most and the argument behind it was help others. One of the great causes of our happiness is our capacity to help others. In fact, they figured out scientifically that if you can have 100 hours a year, that was a magical number for sustained happiness. That's two hours a week of sustained happiness. And here's what they said. When researchers interviewed more than 150 people about recent purchases, they found that spending money on people, uh, <coughs> on other people, and they called it pro-social spending. Pro-social sp spending are things that you do, like if we all go out in a group tonight and, and it's more fun if we all go out and spend money on dinner than if I was to go out and just catch something to eat on my own and eat by myself. Pro-social spending. Or if um, I went to a concert, but there was other people involved and there was some social dynamic. They, they talked about, or, and, and certainly gift giving and, and buying for others <coughs> falls into that. They call it pro-social spending. It boosts our level of happiness. As opposed to material items like, oh, I bought myself a pair of shoes or a new TV or a pair of clothes, a set of clothes or something like that. Now, the Journal of Happiness Studies, because that exists, the Journal of Happiness Studies, published a study that explored this very topic. And they said, participants recalled a previous purchase made for either themselves or someone else and then reported on their happiness. And afterward, participants chose whether to spend a monetary windfall on themselves or someone else. Participants assigned to recall a purchase made for someone else reported feeling significantly happier immediately afterward. More importantly, the happier participants felt, the more likely they were to choose to spend a windfall on someone else in their near future. So spending money on other people makes us happier more than buying stuff for ourselves. Similar studies went on about volunteering. And there was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He wrote a book called Flourish, a visionary new understanding of happiness and well-being. And he said, <coughs> and he explains that helping others can improve our own lives. And he says, we scientists have found that doing a kindness produces the single most reliable monetary increase in the well-being of any exercise we have tested. See, I would say that we, mo we feel most alive when we're able to give. We feel most needed, maybe even valuable, when we're able to contribute. Now, typically, we don't think of generosity as sort of normal or average. It's why little gestures or small acts of kindness 
tend to stand out at us like someone getting up on a Saturday morning to go buy donuts seems like a remarkable feat. And I don't want to take anything away from it because it was really inspiring that I wanted you to hear it too. But we have this idea in our minds that somehow generosity is abnormal. And maybe it's because we live in a culture where it celebrates accumulation, where possessions are highly valued. And we're taught inherently to be some kind of consumers at a very high level. And so I feel like we're groomed to increase our own levels of comfort. At least that's what culture would tell us. The problem is, is that we will never change a life, most notably our own. Now, I would say it this way. I don't think you need to be Bill or Melinda Gates and oversee a foundation uh, with vast amounts of money in order to contribute and feel some level of satisfaction. Everyone has the capacity for joy because everyone has the capacity to give with what you already have. And the myth of generosity is that, oh, if I could just make this much, then, then I could do some real damage or make a real contribution. Oh, if, if, if uh, when my kids move out and I'm not the taxi service or if they're not, you, then I will really be able to give of myself more. Or if, no, no, no. We start with generosity with what we do have. That's always ground zero. And it's not till I get more of any one thing. If I could get just better at this, then I could offer this more. If I could just make more of this, then I could give more. That's not generosity. Generosity is simply learning to be faithful with what we do have. So tonight, I want to talk about our rhythm, or I want to introduce the rhythm of generosity by talking about the how of generosity, the when of generosity, and the why of generosity. Um, and so first, let's begin with when we give, the when of generosity. And there's a verse or a passage that comes to us that's probably a pretty familiar passage. It talks about when we give, we're supposed to be a cheerful giver. Now, I have to admit, um, the idea of being a cheerful giver doesn't always resonate with me. So a verse like this needs further consideration because we're told to be a generous giver, like sort of like, telling you to be nice to your sister. It's like, no, I don't really want to. But what the scripture teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9, it says this. Remember this, whoever, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So let me just add what grace is here. For what you think you don't have to give, it's, it's just giving a measure. It's giving a little because God makes all grace abound with whatever your contribution is. And he says, um, uh, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all, in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will, will abound in every good work. As it is written, 
He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Let's just take a minute to kind of dissect that a little bit. God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, God, in other words, give what you have decided in your heart. What I think he's suggesting to us is that sometimes we feel like we have to give because we have to give. And generosity, the kind of cheerful giver, he's saying don't give out of obligation and certainly don't give out of guilt. If we start from that position, I would say there's a deeper level of forgetting where it all came from. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is more than an intellectual or an obligation. It's because giving is never about guilt. It's about joy. Now, he says this, and this was what was referred to earlier about people seeing a need or feeling compelled to help out. Something that's in us that just responds as part of our conscience. And he talks about this verse, and he quotes uh, another verse, and he says, it's scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. The Hebrew word for righteousness there is sadaka. And uh, he said the sadaka simply means both righteousness and charity. Now, I don't think any one of us wakes up this morning and thinks, I'm feeling pretty righteous about my life. But when you wake up in the morning and you're compelled to do good deeds, when you're compelled to help a less fortunate brother or sister, when you're compelled to help someone who's not as far along, or you choose to walk through your busy life at a slower pace so that others can keep up, that's practicing charity. That's practicing sadaka, which is righteousness. So what we see here and, and I, I love the video that we showed earlier because the picture of these students helping the homeless man, the question that we can end up asking ourselves is, <laughs> out of the three groups of people, the homeless man, the German students, or the onlooking crowd, the question that I went away with was, who went away happiest? Think about it. You could argue that the, the homeless guy probably was most humbled but he walked away feeling blessed and with a little change in his pocket. And then he didn't have to have him do anything for it. Well, you could say, well, it's the students that went away happiness because they just walked away with their friends building a really meaningful memory together with a well-executed plan and a GoPro. Well, maybe it's the crowd that just happened to be in this divine experience this divine appointment where they saw this unfolding beyond like in front of them and they got to participate and drop money in and be a part of something that was bigger than themselves who went away happiest to which i would say all of the above because it was simple acts of charity but it was rooted in grace no one earned anything and no one deserved anything it was just acts of grace through charity. And so it's one guy going, well, I'll give you my bucket and I'll give you my talent. And then another group saying, well, I'll give you my money. But they all gave willingly and happily. See, that's the posture of a cheerful giver. And when we give generously, we're reminded that all of life is a gift. And if everything is a gift, 
then e- all that I have is not my own. My education, well, I worked at it, but it's a gift. My last breath, my current health, my family, my influence, my friends, whatever I have is a gift. None of it is actually my own. And so when we begin to see our lives in light of who the source of our life is, well then we see acts of generosity and acts of charity as sort of normal because we're just stewarding that which we've been entrusted with and letting God's grace abound with whatever our contribution is. I mean, it really has a feeling of that fish and loaves and all of a sudden the multitudes are filled. That's his grace abounding with a simple little offering. Now, the second question about the, the what, what I would simply say as the how we give or the how of generosity. Um, uh, real quick, we r- we're in this series um <coughs> called The Power of Good Works, and I wanted to go through and introduce the rhythms. And the rhythms are simply our way of creating a pathway for us to practice faith. And so my idea is, and we talked about this the last month, um, is that in the Old Testament, there was 10 commandments. And what the people of God, once religion got created, they created 613 um, uh, commandments out of the original 10. And so people got really specific about what kind of way they were found. Now, a rabbi, or which was a spiritual leader of some kind, would have their own interpretation. And their interpretation of following in the way of God would be their yoke. And the idea of the yoke was that it was supposed to form something in you. It was supposed to live the way of Torah, live the way of God. So what I'm simply trying to do for Mission Hills Church is give you a very tangible expression to practice whether we're gathered in a worship center, gathered in a living room, or you're gathered in your living room with your family. This is a way that we can follow in the way of God, whether we're gathered or whether we're apart. And so generosity, I think, is something all of us. It's not about trying to recruit the the wealthiest people so that we can kind of have our financial needs met or the most talented people so that we can have all the ministries covered well. No, no, no. It's God taking a bunch of ragtag misfit people from all walks of life who don't really know each other and coming together, whether you're 20-something or 70-something, and saying, let's be the body of Christ in community. So I want to talk a little bit about generosity and again now get to the idea of how we give. And this is really fascinating to me. Um, this is something that comes out of Deuteronomy because there's 613 commands. What did he mean by those? Well, let me just give you a snapshot because when we talk about the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that's referred to as the law. Sometimes it's referred to as the Pentateuch, Penta being five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have this original text, by the way, the text Jesus taught, and all of these well-practicing Hebrew people would have known this backwards and forwards. Now, some people would have different points of emphasis towards social justice, towards the poor, the marginalized, or to what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath, or eating clean or unclean foods, whatever their point of interpretation was. But we get a clear shot over what the Torah was supposed to do. And it talked about all manner of things, from our sexuality to the kind of clothes we were supposed to wear, to what we were going to eat or to how we were going to manage debt. 
there was clear guidelines in the Old Testament about this. Listen to in, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, and we're going to read several verses. And if you've ever read through this, it always is kind of a head scratcher like, oh my gosh, this is the most dry reading of all time. Until you realize there's this larger story of understanding what it meant behind God's intent. Okay, so verse 10. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, and, and again, just pick up some of the things that feel sort of daily, sort of ordinary, sort of everyday kind of qualities. Oh, a loan. We all know about that. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into his house to get what he is offering as a pledge. Stay outside and let the man to whom you are making the loan to bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, do not go to sleep <coughs> with his pledge in your possession. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. In other words, it would be like our signing on the dotted line, our signature being our bond, our handshake being our bond. It would be your outer cloak, which made a person quite vulnerable in a desert arid region. Once the sun went down, it was going to like be with sleeping without covers. Don't rob a person of basic human quality of being able to find rest and not freeze to death. But legally, they were allowed to take that as sort of a, uh, a deposit, if you will. And he's like, yeah, don't do that. You can do that by the law, but I'm inviting you into something holier than that. So what is charity? Righteousness. Sadaka. And so he goes on to say, <coughs> uh, do not, uh, let's see, then he will thank you and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Verse 14, do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. You got a day worker? Don't pay him tomorrow. What does he say? Whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns, whether he is light-skinned or whether he crossed over the border illegally, whether he's a refugee, a migrant, whatever your background, treat him right, pay him what he's due. This has all sorts of implications. This story isn't about then and there. It's about here and now. If there is a timeless quality to the scripture, it is speaking to today. And he's saying, <coughs> pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Verse 17, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Those were the three most vulnerable categories in their society. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I have commanded you. There is. When people always say, Where's the, I, don't like the, I don't like the Old Testament because there's no grace in the Old Testament. I li it seems like God's all God of wrath in the Old Testament. New Testament, it's all about grace and mercy and kind. Except when you see a gracious invitation woven into that that says, remember that you were once slaves? It's sort of like you walking into money because your parents made a life for themselves and not realizing the sacrifice and you just sort of assuming that it's always been this way. And it's like your parents saying, you know, I didn't always have it so good. You know, you sure have it good today. And I don't know if that sounds like you as a parent today or if that sounds like the, the home you grew up in.
But that's what God's reminding them. You were once slaves. You were once dependent on me to feed you. You were once so vulnerable, so oppressed, and I heard your cry. Don't forget whose you are and where you came from. That's what he's saying. And, he, and then he gets re- really even pointed because he's talking about people's livelihood and business now. Now, what's the predominant you know, business model for the day? Agriculture. So what does he speak to? Agriculture. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back for it to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that your Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the aliens, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over a second time. Leave what remains for the aliens and the fatherless and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I have commanded you to do this. Jesus gets really pointed, reminding them of where they came from. Now, they all would have had an idea of of this kind of teaching. But um, when he starts to talk about how we give, in other words, if you have owned a field, don't reap a harvest all the way to the edges. Let people come by and pick. So in other words, the people of God, both then and now, are both, hear this, God's welfare system and God's social security. The Roman government wasn't going to provide this. It was the people of God restoring a broken humanity. So where there was a need and you actually saw the need, it was part of your response because your heart is actually God's heart. So if there's something going on and you go, that just ain't right, God sees it too, and he wanted you to notice it as well. There is something that we're supposed to be a part of, something that we're supposed to participate, and I think at the core of this is God's invitation, his mandate towards generous living that feels normal, not extraordinary. He's saying, if you see someone in need, if you see someone vulnerable, if you see an opportunity to bless unexpectedly, even though the guy came in with a couple bucks, give him the donut and kolache anyway. And who walks away happier? The homeless guy or the Mancusos? None. In God's economy, grace abounds. And we all walk away the better for it today. And so there's this kind of nuance that I I don't want to miss. There's a tension that I think I wrestle with. Because if you grow up in my home, there's a few things that our home was based on. I mean, it was like pragmatism was next to godliness. Um, Hard work was next to godliness. And so if you grow up in a northern European home from depression babies, there is something very non-frivolous about our, or very, very, um, very pragmatic about our home. And so if you grow up like me, you kind of snub your nose at people who hmm, look lazy, don't seem to be working very hard. When you want to yell at the guy who's begging for money to go get a job, see, this 
is not the tzedakah. This is not the righteousness that God has invited us into. And I am not saying give to every single person at the stoplight because you'll never get to work and you'll never, that's not, that's not the answer either. But I am concerned about the condition of our heart and the whispering that we might or might not choose to listen to because what he's clearly saying here is, wait a second, you're commanding me to leave stuff for people who haven't worked as hard as I've worked? You're asking me to leave stuff for illegals who snuck into this country? Yes. You're asking me to provide for people who don't have citizenship and are undocumented? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because why? The Imago Dei says we are all image bearers. We are all created in the image of God. We just look a whole lot different. And then maybe it's by God's grace that you were born in an educated, industrialized country with paved roads and clean drinking water unless you live in Flint, Michigan. You think you deserve that? You think that you earn that? No. We just happen to be born here by the grace of God. It's all grace. So the third thing that we get to, um, oh, let me just kind of wrap. Uh, I want to show you one clip. And if you are a parent here today, this will resonate deeply, deeply with you. It comes from Louis C.K. on uh, Louis C.K. and his show called Louis. Uh, he's having uh, an argument with his daughter, and I thought it was too perfect to pass up because when we start to talk about it's not fair, um, I think that resonates with all of us. And so, how how we give starts with feeling, with seeing a need and looking to meet that need simply because we can. And all God's people said, amen. Oh, my God. The only time you should ever look at your neighbor's bowl is when there's not enough. I mean, that is just good preaching right there. Uh, so when we give generously, we're reminded that all of life is a gift. And it all starts with everything is from God. And um, it's, it's not my own. But how we give starts with simply seeing a need and looking to meet that need because we can. You're not looking to solve the problem. You're just looking to meet a need. And there's a difference there, right? Because there's so many issues. There's so many things that feel unsurmountable, but we're not looking to solve things. We're just looking to meet a need. Now, the last thing I want to do is look at one more verse. It's a parable that Jesus taught. And um, I love this parable because as I shared earlier, is that we tend to like break up the Bible in two segments, the grace portion of the Bible and the non-grace portion, the wrathful portion and the merciful portion, except tonight it gets flip-flopped because we see the grace of the Old Testament and how God's reminding us of, hey, be reminded about where you came from. Be reminded that all of this is a gift. Be reminded that you don't own any of it. And then Jesus comes along and tells this shocking parable, but you can tell someone got under his skin. This was him in a tense, kind of tight-lipped moment where he's just like, you could just hear, I, I could almost sense he wanted, and this is me projecting, but he has this. In Luke chapter 12, um, we read these words in verse, uh, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, 
who appointed me to judge you or be an arbitrator between you? Then he said, watch out, be on your guard against the all kinds of greed, and man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What he was basically acknowledging is that in the inheritance of a family, the eldest son would get half, and all the other siblings would be, it would be divided against. And so the complaint, at least what scholars would say in this passage, is that some older brother is taking the whole share for himself, and some younger sibling is saying, tell my big brother to share, because that has never happened today. I'm so glad we've evolved so much. And Jesus has just kind of had enough of it, because he's looking at all the needs around this oppressed people. I mean, this is like the oppressive Roman government, right? They're the global military superpower of the day, and they're, they're, they're just got their thumb down on everyone's well-being. And here's what Jesus goes on to do, and he tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones. Wrong answer. And there I will store my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, move to South Florida, retire, and play golf a lot, and catch the early bird special and be merry. But God said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Not towards one another, but towards God. Why towards God, not towards one another? Because simply it's all God's. All that you have, all that you are, all that you think you've earned, all God's. Because you're not rich towards God. So let's just talk about that for just a minute. Because this is one of those passages. Jesus normally is all about grace, and he's all about mercy, and he's all, and, and, and so much of it, in, in this one scene, Jesus says, this act deserves death. I ain't playing. This you should go to hell for. This is no good. No bueno. Not playing around. And he's harsher than harsh than any other place that we see the ministry of Jesus. And the offense is someone stockpiling and getting more lazy and increasing their own level of comfort and wanting to do less. And all of a sudden, this feels like a contemporary modern-day American indictment. I get convicted reading this. I'm struggling to want to talk about this. <laughs> so don't blame the messenger. <laughs> but I think there's something really life-giving behind this. And I would simply say it this way. We don't necessarily extend generosity to save others. We need to extend generosity to save ourselves from believing that we deserve everything that God has blessed us with already. Are we called to be good stewards? Absolutely. Super biblical. It's honoring. Should we be wise with our investments? Absolutely. 
Should we be careful with how we just throw the resources around, whether they be time or talents or treasures? Absolutely. But Jesus does sort of an about face on everything like namby-pamby, grace, mercy, all acceptance, everyone's good, we're all fine. And he goes, no, 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 no. There are needs among you. There are opportunities all around you. Don't not look. Don't not see this. If I could use a double negative for all the English majors in here, I apologize for that. What, what can we conclude from this? And, and, and that is this. I would say it this way, and some of you have heard me describe it this way before. Faith is a journey. The primary metaphor that we have in all of scripture for faith is that of a journey. In other words, it implies movement. Nothing static, no arrival. And the temptation for those of us like me who grew up in the church our whole life is to see ourselves as somehow I have come so far and maybe I have arrived. And Jesus, his whole ministry was about next steps. I mean, he was dealing with people who had law and prophets back memorized backwards and forwards. And they were living so devoutly. And Jesus would go to even the, the, the most well-renowned, well-educated, most pious of them all and say, take a next step, buddy. So to the young, rich, young ruler, he says, all of these I've kept, all these commandments I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus kind of quotes and challenges him and says that the guy went away sad. What I'm saying here is that Jesus was always about the invitation of a next step. Jesus was always courting us to one step further because there is no concept of spiritual arrival anywhere in the gospel or scripture. So Jesus comes along and he introduces a new concept to everyone who's already really spiritual. And he says, I have a new thought for you. There's just one God. And they're like, <gasps> because it was the belief in the day that gods were over local deities. And so you always heard the Israelites refer to them as refer to their God as the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Why would they say it in such a way like that? Because there was a localized deity for a particular region, territory or people. And so you see this throughout scripture where deities were known over different regions. Jesus comes along and saying, I am the way, the truth and life. He, he all of a sudden turns from polytheism to monotheism and he invites them to take one step with him. He goes to the Ten Commandments and he says, you've heard about murder? How about this? I'm going to take two steps on this one and say, can you love your neighbor as yourself? Because in the Beatitudes, he says, I would even go so far as to say, if you have hatred in your heart, you've already committed the act. Jesus was always about one step. There is a temptation to want to be the finished product. There is an impatience in us to want to be further along. Can I allow you to walk in grace and simply just take a next step? It's always A to B, B to C, C to D, and so forth. But don't get so discouraged thinking, I want to be down the road, A to Q. That's not the gospel. Jesus comes and says, follow me. Walk in the way of Torah. Walk in the way of God and take a next step. So my question is, what's your next step? Now, let's talk about finances because it's very easy to think, well, I've arrived at my 10%. And, and in some time, we're going to talk about the, the importance of 10% of our money being given back to God because that's a really significant number, and we can see it all the way through Scripture. 
But here's the temptation, is to feel like, well, I've got to 10%. Except we know that there's no concept of spiritual arrival in Scripture. So maybe we need to talk about 11%. Because it's all God's anyway, isn't it? And you just saw some opportunity, did you not? You just saw a need. And maybe God's inviting you to be a part of that solution. The temptation is to think, well, I got to that point. Now, let me just unpack a few scenarios because I don't want to be legalistic about it. If you are living in debt and you can't even break even, the worst thing that I could do is to say, you need to start giving 10%. Let's take an offering. Maybe what we need to do is get you with some friends who actually have a really great background in financial consulting and get you on a payment plan so that we could get you to break even and get you out of the red. And that's your next step so that we can start living simply within our means. God doesn't want your money. He wants us free. So what does freedom look like? One more step. But say we're making ends meet, but we don't have a practice of tithe and offering, to which I would say don't start with 10% because you'll go into the red. Let's start with 3%. And work your way there and see what God does. The invitation is always to a next step, not to legalism. But if you find yourself doing well, right, meeting needs, and you're at 10%, God's not done. God still wants to restore and repair a humanity, and he wants all of our hearts to remain pliable and sensitive to his invitation to another next step. There is no concept of arrival. And so this idea of generosity is actually, I think, the thing that brings the most liberty. Generosity brings the most freedom. Uh, and so what I would say this way, uh, just a couple of things about specifically Mission Hills. Um, well, first, the difference between a tithe and an offering. I would say there is a tithe is a 10% number of all that you earn. Now, if you're talking to a wise friend of mine, he would say, of your adjusted gross income. You can ask Theo about that later if that makes no sense to you. But we want to be able to think of, we want to honor God with our finances. And, and it starts with our earnings because it's all God. He, he gave me my last breath, right? He gave me the ability to have an education, to have an upwardly mobile career, to be able to have the experiences, to have the social skills. To all of it is a gracious gift from God. Or whether it be a strong back, or the legs, or the ability to speak, the ability to speak two languages, it's all grace. So offerings, I like to think of as above and beyond a 10%, and we all can participate in that. But when we talk about systematic giving, we're talking about an ongoing act of worship because I need reminders. And throughout Scripture, we always have these tangible reminders that people of God would bring as a systematic way to remind ourselves of the source of life, the source of our provision. And that's what God's inviting us to do. Um, let me just say something about Mission Hills. We are in a unique place. Uh, we have, I am trying to launch what I think can be a low overhead church. I'm not looking to do capital campaigns. I'm not looking to acquire properties, but I'm not opposed to them either. We, we have done the most streamlined budget that we can, and so we're trying to just be as, as, as efficient as possible. But every church starts out with their budget 
looking at 52 offerings for a year. Friends, we have less than 26. (laughs) Because I didn't want to plant a church. I wanted to create a way to make disciples. And so part of the culture of Mission Hills is that we want to be in community and we want to be a community who's practicing faith. So what does that mean? We don't get as many opportunities to pass around the baskets. So the best thing you can do as a part of your ongoing act of worship and your ongoing reminder of whose it all is anyway is to s- just to get online and to have a systematic way that would allow us to do some budgeting and to look ahead more than <coughs> March uh, to, see <laughs> to see. Now, we were really thankful because we had some year-end contributions that came in that set us up for the first quarter to be able to, m- to meet some of our initial obligations. So we're, we're in great shape today, and we're thankful for it. And frankly, I kind of think we're exactly where we need to be right now. Just like Jesus starts condemning the storehouse, I was praying about the Powerball. I was like, I've never played, but maybe, Lord, are you calling me to play Powerball lottery? Because th- this could be your provision, you know? And uh, maybe I could be, and you could just demonstrate. That's storehouse stuff that Jesus just condemned, right? Oh, wouldn't it be great to just get a lottery winner or like, you know, like a Delionaire in here or something like that and could just kind of take care of it and it could be like we sit at Dad's church? Well, I think it would rob all of us of building a community of faith together. Um, so let me just conclude by saying this. I think the power of the Christian life is that we're most alive when we give and we simply are able to trust God with the results. And, um, and I think that's where we begin to see God move. I think the temptation is when we start to give of ourselves, whether it be our time, our pocketbook, our giftedness, all of a sudden we go, are they appreciating it enough? Are they stewarding it well enough? Did they know that I did that? And Jesus would say, the offering is to God so that your generosity towards God is acknowledged. It is a spiritual act of worship. So all that we have is a gift for him. So can I pray with you? And then we can just continue on in a time of worship. And we're going to just take the time right now to do uh, our offering tonight. And uh, Trevor, if you want to come back up and um, let's just pray about this. Uh, Father, um, I'm aware that how blessed we are. And it's so hard in our culture to um, to find contentment. I confess my unsatisfaction. I confess jealousy. I confess the things of feeling like I need um, that are probably more suited for desires. I also confess that I feel well taken care of. So I want to thank you for being a provider. And so the first thing I would pray is help us to be good stewards of what we have today. Help us to steward that well. And help us to participate with your kingdom in Austin as it is in heaven. Through this church, through our tribes. Lord, I pray that you would stir in us uh, a longing uh, to see what you see. And we pray for sensitive hearts and as necessary to resensitize our hearts. And I pray that as we go through this season of Lent, that we wouldn't just pray for new life, that we wouldn't just pray for blessing. We would go through a 
sacrifice, a dying to self so that our hearts could be resensitized to him anew. So I pray that you would just speak to us in this moment as we declare your word together today. Just how beautiful you are to us. We cry out to you. Thank you. as we worship you in these moments.